This podcast is presented to you by the Warrant Officer and Non-Commissioned Officer Academy. Lead, mentor, train. Hi, Ben Gallagher here. I'm the Deputy Chief Instructor at the Warrant Officer and Non-Commissioned Officer Academy. Today, I'm joined by Anne Goyne. Anne is a psychologist with over 34 years' experience in the defence and the public service. Her history spans from an extensive background in Defence Force recruiting, working on many research projects, one of which was the design and introduction of the Pulse Survey. Anne was also the Senior Psychologist at ADFA, and more recently, Anne has taken up a post at the Centre for Defence Leadership and Ethics Group at Western Creek in Canberra. Hi, Anne, and thanks for joining me today in the Green Room. Hi, Ben. Hi, Anne. Can you tell me a little bit about your work with the Centre for Defence Leadership and Ethics? Yeah, okay. Our uh, our unit is responsible for uh, leadership and ethics development within defence. My role there is to provide behavioural and research uh, uh, advice to the organisation, as well as to conduct presentations and and education and training with defence personnel. I understand that you work with a couple of former RSMs of Army as well. I do, yes. Kev uh, Woods is with us, as well as Dave Ashley, both former uh, RSMAs. And they are, in fact, integral to the work that we do because they have that wonderful uh, connection with defence people, both through their former roles, but also just their personality. So it's marvellous. Oh, wonderful. So both of those gentlemen come down and mentor the trainees here uh, at the academy uh, as well on our warrant officers course. So it's a fine resource to be able to draw upon those individuals because they have many, many years of experience. Absolutely, uh, to be able to lead, mentor, train uh, the trainees here uh, at the academy. Now, Anne, you recently spoke at the Chief of Defence Forces Leadership uh, Forum back in March. Uh, Can you tell me what you spoke about? Right. Uh, I was asked to bring together a presentation that came out of some of the recent uh, writings and work that we've been doing, partly, I guess, coming out of the the results of the DART, the Defence Abuse Response Task Force. But I think more broadly than that. So my my topic was um, the silent half and violence, abuse, suicide and gender. And everyone warned me. They said, no one's going to want to hear about gender and everyone's had enough of gender. And I said, well, I don't think that anybody has heard about the story from the perspective of men. That's definitely an interesting perspective. Can you elaborate more? Yeah, okay. So we've heard through um, investigations and numerous scandals about the mistreatment of women in the ADF. And uh, Army's no different. We had the Jedi scandal and and we had Dave Morrison's big... uh, uh, just you know, big podcast to the world about the treatment of women in the in the army. Um, but you talk to any women today, and they will say that the way they were treated was probably not that different to the way a lot of men were treated. What do you mean by that, Anne? Well, okay, so the history of abuse or the mistreatment of people in the in the military goes back a very long way, long before there were even very many women serving at all. And mostly it it involved trainees uh, and sometimes it was peer-on-peer institutional type of uh, of violence. Sometimes it was uh, junior staff onto onto junior uh, recruits. But it was always there. There was always this 
strange threat of of a violent outcome if you didn't toe the line. So why do you think it was like that, Anne? Well, I think it had a lot to do with the perception of what it took to get a guy up to the standard to be able to serve their country and to go to war. Um, People, you know, are in danger in war and you need people who, beside you, that you trust. And I think the perception was if people uh, didn't trust the people near them uh, in training, then they weren't going to trust them in war. Do you think this was embedded in our culture? Yeah, I think... It, it was, and I, I don't think it was just the military culture. I think if you look at the broader Australian culture, there was a culture of um, uh, a violence, really, that was almost day-to-day, you know, men being treated in a, in a pretty tough way. And it was considered the way to make men real men. You know, you, you, you treat them hard and they become hard. Was there any downsides to this culture? Yeah. The problem with a culture like this is it tended to value the strong over the weak. So it was a culture that rewarded people for being hard and, and even abusive and sometimes really openly violent. It didn't take those people out of the system, it, it kept them. And, and, it, and it propagated that kind of personality and that kind of culture. And the problem was you, you, you were selecting really that kind of person over and over and ignoring this other group of people who, who actually had really valuable characteristics and traits. They just weren't as violent as these people. So you were creating a culture that, that was by itself violent or, or actually valued nothing but violence. Now, you might argue, well, isn't that what the army's all about? And I'm going to go, yes and no. It makes the army less flexible to only be that way. And we're now starting to see the problems with that because we want to have a more diverse military. We want more women in the military. And we're now really struggling with this culture that has always valued the strong over the weak that therefore requires everyone to be um, the same, to conform conform very much to this kind of model of aggressive, win-at-all-costs, power-only kind of people um, which makes the army a very uh, a, a very narrow organisation. So, Anne, what can we do to address this? Well, I think the the army's actually done a lot to address this. I think the army, um, actually, I believe more than more than the other services in some ways, because the the problem was more obvious in the army. The army's actually, from the top down, done a great deal to start saying we have to be different. We have to change ourselves, we have to be more diverse, we have to have women in all the different roles that men do. Um, The problem I feel is that there hasn't been any dialogue with the men. They've just simply been told, well, you have to change and this is how it's going to be and there's no recognition of really what that change is going to mean for them or no, no dialogue with them about maybe even a sense of grief of losing something in this process. And do you think men feel like they've been left out of this conversation? Well, I, I really think they have been left out of this conversation. I just think they've been told in no uncertain terms that they're the problem and that they need to change. And I don't think that's a dialogue that helps anyone. I don't think that's helping women and I, and I certainly don't think it's helping men. 
I think what, what we want to do is to bring men and women along down this path together. And that means recognising what men feel that they're losing um, and, and also at the same time valuing what women are contributing. Not saying that all women have to be like men. There's no value to diversity if all the diverse people end up just simply adopting the major culture and they're just as aggressive and just as tough and just as the same as, as men. What we're hoping for is a much more flexible army that can be uh, all things to all people. Um, and, and that is really going to come from a better understanding about gender. So, Anne, in your opinion, what can we do about this? Okay. Well, there's been silence really on the issue of gender for really about 40, maybe even 50 years, because it was seen that talking about gender only made, this, made things worse. Well, I'm going to say not talking about gender has been a real problem because people don't actually understand that there are gender norms. There are things that are normative for men to be. And actually, power over women was a gender norm for men. It's, and, you know, or not just men, for anyone masculine, women as well. That's not going to be very conducive to having a more diverse society or having a society where women are working alongside men. So we've obviously got to take people down the path of change. The problem is, in our society, and especially in the military, we value masculine traits. We value the strong. We value aggression and toughness and heart and power. We only value those things. We've never gone down the road of asking ourselves, well, is there anything to be offered in the other set of characteristics that make up humanity? The compassion, the nurturing, the kindness, the supporting, the, the looking after people. And I have to say, there's a huge amount that, to, that people gain from those things. But the trouble is, people think it's a continuum. They think that at one end you're masculine and at the other end you're feminine. And so if you start displaying any characteristics that look even remotely feminine, you've lost your masculinity. Well, I'm here to say, no, they're not related. They're all individual little characteristics about people. They're not, the, they're not part of a continuum. So what you're telling me, Anne, is that these traits are mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're not related. So, so you can be quite a, an aggressive guy focused on winning and the situation that requires that, you'll be that. But at the same time, in a different situation, you could be a compassionate man full of kindness and nurturing because the situation requires you to be that. You don't lose your aggression and your ability to be a man like this masculine man by being by being nurturing. The two things are completely unrelated. So you can have extremely masculine men who are also, by this uh, concept, also have all the feminine characteristics, if you like. They also have the compassion and the expressiveness and the, and the nurturing things. They don't, it doesn't make them less manly. They're not, they're not um, a feminine man. They're a man who is androgynous. They have all the characteristics. So are we addressing this in Army through any of our training? Not specifically Army, but we are certainly addressing it. So on the Defence Strategic Studies course, they do a, a component of that course, which is called the Personal Leadership Program. And in this program, they're encouraged to look at their emotional leadership, so their ability to, percept, to have a, a greater perception 
of people's emotional states, their ability to respond appropriately to people, but also to collaborate, to be able to work together with other people from all different sorts of walks of life or services or whatever. These are those soft skills, you know, the soft skills of leadership. But it's rather late to be doing that with some people. I mean, some people come on that course and they are so uh, socialised to be nothing but masculine that they find it almost impossible to change those characteristics about themselves that late in the day. Their whole focus is power on, you know, go hard, power through, get get what you want by simply using um, a, an aggressive win-at-all-cost kind of approach. That doesn't work at the collaborative strategic level. It's a it's a problem. So, so given that, do you think we need to introduce this training earlier on in a person's career? I absolutely do. I think if we start to understand that men and women can be very flexible in their in their style, in their in their way, in their interpersonal skills, that they can use this whole range of characteristics about themselves because they have them all. They don't have to suppress those ones that are their, you know, classically sort of feminine style. They can actually be those things. Then what we're going to have is a much better balance amongst our people. We're going to have people that can support each other in times of difficulty. What people need after trauma is not go hard. It's generally having people to support them through it. You know, people who are prepared to listen, people who are prepared to show care and concern. That's actually what makes people better. So, Anne, you recently uh, wrote for the Australian Defence Force Journal uh, an article called Abuse of Power and Institutional Violence in the ADF, A Culture Transformed. Can you tell me about that paper? Right. So, Jamie Cullens, who was the former director of CDLE, uh, he had read the uh, DART reports, so the Defence Abuse Response Task Force reports, into the into the history of um, violence in in the ADF. And he said, defence really has to respond to this. Defence had already come up with the pathway to change, new generation Navy, new horizons in the Air Force. There was a whole lot of things going on. So there wasn't really much more, I think, that defence felt that it needed to say. I mean, there'd been a lot said. But those reports were extremely confronting and so I went away, obviously, and read all the reports, and uh, and I don't think anyone who reads them can walk away and say, um, oh, there's nothing more to be seen here, can't say anything. So I uh, ended up researching this in a bit more, and that's where this paper came from. So, Anne, in your paper you talk about uh, the first tangible signs of a shift occurring in 1996 after a multiple Black Hawk helicopter crash that resulted in the deaths of 18 service personnel. Why do you think it took an event such as this to make change happen? Okay, well, the Chief of Army at the time did what I think uh, many people argue to this day. It was quite a reasonable thing. He said, well, look, you know, the, the responsibility for anything like this has to be with the commander on the ground. Well, that just went down like a lead balloon in the army and and beyond the army because everyone knew at the time the pressure on army aviation to try and get helicopters up into the air and to, to get this new uh, role for army happening. And there was, 
you know, there just wasn't enough resources, I think, around it. And But moreover than that, here they had their commander really rather abrogating any responsibility for what was going on in his service. And the view was that's just no longer acceptable. You can't whitewash away your responsibility for everything that happens in your organisation. So, Anne, what was this fundamental change that occurred in Army as a result? Okay. Well, it, it occurred in Army, but it, it occurred beyond Army. And that is that we have to take responsibility for what happens to people very seriously. In other words, uh, that a single life really matters. I think prior to this, we were very blasé. People died. You know, we had lots of people who killed themselves. We had lots of people who died in training accidents. There wasn't much war going on at the time, but we had lots of we had lots of deaths, and there was almost nothing said about it. It was just kind of, oh well, bad luck, move on. After this, no, a single life became a very, very serious thing, and it and remains this way today. In fact, this has gone out to the broader society. A single Australian lost in London at the moment is creating worldwide worldwide headlines and and huge angst in Australia because we now value everyone and we value life and we think that abusing people or mistreating them is now a great wrong, you know, that very bad. So, Anne, how has this played out in the military? Well, we've seen over the years large scandals over and over and over, scandals about the treatment of people within the military. But nearly all these scandals have to have basically focused on the treatment of women in the military, the mistreatment of women in the military. And the big one in the end, was, well, the big two, was uh, the Skype scandal in Army and followed by the Jedi scandal within, um, within Army. Of course, that had actually occurred pre to the Skype scandal. But all of these seem to put the uh, the you know headlight right onto the treatment of women, completely ignoring the fact that there had been constantly underneath that mistreatment of men, and that mistreatment of men had been um, an accepted thing within the military. No officers had stood up and said, "Oh no, this is wrong. You can't bed bash people. You can't woofer people. You can't um, you can't." Uh, um, you know, physically harm them. No, there's never been a word and there still really hasn't been a word about it. Mistreatment of men has been an accepted thing. Mistreatment of women, especially the sexual exploitation of women, no, that's not okay. You're not allowed to do that. And you've had the Chief of Army or previous Chief of Army stand up and tell everyone in the world, no, 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 you can't mistreat women. I'm sorry, I don't think it's acceptable to, to mistreat men. I think what you end up with when you when you mistreat men and you do nothing about it is you simply end up with angry, frustrated men who feel that they are not valued. So, Anne, given that, do you think that this could pose a problem for army, if not defence, going forward? Mm. I actually think it is right now. And it's a, it's a problem that women are also facing because there's this strong push at the moment to promote the, the, the value of women within the organisation. I haven't got a problem with promoting um, the value of, of diversity and all those other things, but you mustn't do that at the, at the apparent expense of the men. You can't keep saying, oh, women are this and women are that and all the rest of it and focusing the limelight on them all the time. Because at the same time, you, the, the, the subtext seems to be, men, you don't matter and you're not valued. You can't do that. That just 
creates an angry, uh, adversarial and very unhappy majority who resent the the people coming in, this new diverse community that are coming in. What we have to do is we simply have to do this better. We have to be more flexible about the way we do this. We have to say to men, men have held up the military for generations. They are the people who have protected and cared for our country, along with a small number of women, but the women have certainly been there. And what we want now is a a military that's more representative of the broader population. Men are out there showing the way and they're doing a great job uh, and we want them to share this experience with women We want and we want women to be valued, but not at the expense of men. We simply want women to be coming into the organisation and being valued, which to a large extent is happening. But this constant messaging all the time about the women is actually, I think, now beginning to hurt and upset men. So, Anne, do you have any concluding points? Yes. I think the Army has done a fantastic job. I think Army's leadership on the whole has been really great about the way it's driving a a process of change. I think most people have the best of intentions and really genuine goodwill. I just feel, and I'm getting this feedback wherever I go, that men now feel that they are being disrespected to some extent. To me, that's counterproductive and it can be quickly repaired and quickly fixed. And I believe we have the leaders that can do that. All they need to realise is, well, that's the way we need to go a bit now. And I know I can speak for women in the army and women beyond the army. They'll be grateful for that too because in the long run they'll say, That will make men feel as valued as us and that's only going to make it easier for us to work beside them. So, Anne, thanks for joining me today in the Green Room to talk about your perspective on such an interesting topic. Thanks, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. This podcast is produced by the Warrant Officer and Non-Commissioned Officer Academy and is copyright of the Commonwealth of Australia.